Well, hello. Nice to uh, see HTC. Always a pleasure to teach the Bible anywhere, but this is the best place to do it, and it is uh, an honor to once again have that opportunity. Uh, my assignment is to discuss with you uh, the rewards of righteousness. Um, and it's, uh, you know, we've been having this thematic dive into the book of Proverbs. There's a lot to say about how God will reward those who make good choices in the book of Proverbs. And we'll talk about that today. You guys okay? You know, Cheryl and I, we celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary last month. Thank you. And the, the relationship that we have developed over, you know, decades now is, is a very healthy relationship because from the beginning we had uh, several objectives, I guess you could call them. Number one was to understand who each of us were. I would understand who she is, she would understand who I am. And that takes a while. The second step would be to understand what's important to each one of us. And the third step would be to make the proper adjustments to align our lives, our individual lives, with the uh, preferences of the other person. And so when it comes to discussing a relationship with the righteous God, it's kind of a complicated thing. but you follow that same process. You want to, first of all, understand who God is. Secondly, you want to understand what is important to him, how he rolls, what his priorities are. And then thirdly, it's our job to make the appropriate adjustments to make sure that the relationship remains healthy. God is not a bully. He does not expect us to align our lives to him simply because he's on an ego trip. In every area of our life, God's will for each one of us is incredibly practical, first of all. But then it is extremely beneficial to us. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 29, and I know that's not in the Proverbs, we'll get to those in a bit, but chapter 29, verse 11, very popular passage. I know the plans I have for you, says God. And he would say that to each of us today. He has plans for us. And then he qualifies the kinds of things we can expect when we understand him, understand his plan, and then make the appropriate adjustments to align with that plan. And this is what happens. God says, my plans are to prosper you, number one. Not to harm you. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He wants to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. His plans are incredibly practical, 
and extremely beneficial. So the process of discovering what God's plans are for us is really important. At least it should be, if for no other reason than those four things that he mentions in that one verse. Prosperity, protection, not to harm us, hope, something the world is in desperate need of, and the time to enjoy them all. He wants to give us a future. You could actually call those four things rewards of what? Righteousness. But we're not here to exegete a verse out of the book of Jeremiah. This series is about the Proverbs, so I just want you to hold on to that thought for a few minutes. Righteousness, the rewards of righteousness. Dikiasune is the Greek word for righteousness. That's the word that is translated, the English word righteousness is translated from. And it refers to more than simply doing the right thing because God says it's the right thing. The word is actually a reference to the state of things as they were designed to be. They were intended to be. We recently had a, a refrigerator fixed in our home. It wasn't working right. It actually, it wasn't working at all. And so I wanted to return it to what the Bible would call a state of righteousness, where it functions as it was designed to function. In order to get the thing figured out, the repairman followed a very specific set of directions to get a back to where we could literally enjoy, in biblical terminology, we could enjoy its righteousness. And that's all God wants for us, to help us experience life as he designed us to experience it. Now, before we, we dive too far into the book of Proverbs and talk about the rewards of righteousness, uh, let's start with a few definitions. Um, righteous. I don't know what that means to you. It's different now for me than it was when I was young. I was in high school, and if we liked something, it was righteous. I don't know if you're old enough <laughs> to remember that word uh, being used in that sense. We'd see a tricked-out 68 Mustang roll by, and we'd say, oh, man, that's righteous. We'd get invited to a friend's house to go swimming, and even that was righteous. <laughs> We're so used to throwing so many important words around so carelessly in our culture, we have to make sure we understand what we're talking about, especially here. Now, if something can truly be called righteous, it is something that aligns, and here's the definition, it aligns with the character and work of God. That's righteous. God is righteous. Because what he does is always in perfect alignment with himself. Now, I'm pretty sure that if Jesus had been born in our culture, he would be driving a 69 Mustang. But that's just maybe an assumption. Our alignment with God's righteousness, though, has a few layers to it. And this is where it gets complicated. We have a righteous God. We are a fallen people, 
And now we need to make adjustments to align our lives with the character and work of God. And those layers are not just theological discussions, but they're chronological discussions. You could see our alignment to God's righteousness as a chronological process. It's past alignment, it's present alignment, and it's future alignment. In other words, the Bible describes different theological layers of our righteousness, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And from our very temporal vantage point, all three are attached to a timetable. Now there's a chart in your notes where you can fill in some blanks. And let's start with the idea of justification. Justification is a very important theological concept. Biblical justification is what happened when we gave our lives to Christ. Justification, the word describes God's decision to declare a new believer to be positionally righteous, and here's the term, in Christ. And that in itself is an important term in the Christian faith and one that shows up repeatedly throughout the New Testament. We are often described as people who are now, because we've given our heart to Jesus, we are now in Christ. And even though we remained imperfect in a practical daily sense, and you've already gone sideways today. I know, I know you. We all have. Wrong attitudes, wrong actions, wrong words, wrong conversations. There's always something to trip us up in a practical sense. We are very imperfect. But in a positional sense, theologically, we have been placed in Christ's righteousness. We have this secure new position inside the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Now that's what happened to you the day you gave your heart to Christ. And of course, I'm assuming that you've done that. And if you haven't, we'll give you the chance in a minute. You responded to the gospel by admitting, believing, and choosing Jesus. And God declared you to be justified and your alignment to his righteousness positionally was triggered. You were justified by faith. Look at what Paul said in Romans chapter three, verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. To all who believe, we have been justified. And there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. That was the big issue that divided the church in its early years. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter your background. If you gave your life to Christ, he's talking about you. We've all sinned, verse 23. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us are now justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So if you gave your heart to Christ and anybody ever asked you the question, have you been justified? You say, absolutely. God's word is very clear about that. 
The Apostle Paul continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in Christ, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So past justification, for me it was April of 1962. I was seven years old, and I asked Christ into my life, and I was justified by faith, and I was positioned in the righteousness of Christ. I actually, that day, became the righteousness of God, positionally. So now that we have justification, we look forward to glorification. That's still future. Our glorification will happen the moment we die or when Jesus comes back, if that happens before we die and we enter into eternity and we are completely perfected. That's what we could call, in fact, you can fill in some blanks here, that's what we call perfect righteousness. Peter, the apostle, weighs in in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That word dwells is one of my favorite compound words in the Greek New Testament. Kataokeo. It's a combination of two Greek thoughts. Kata, which means to get down or down. Oikeo sounds very similar to a word you hear often around High Desert Church. Oikeo means home, to be at home. Literally, katokeo means to get down at home. In other words, in heaven, heaven is where righteousness gets down at home. The word refers to being comfortable, to being familiar. That is, in heaven, when we are glorified, we'll be comfortably surrounded or we will be at home with righteousness. And this world is anything but righteous, and we oftentimes feel like uh, foreigners to this planet because we have been justified. We look forward to being glorified because in heaven, we will be surrounded by righteousness. We're going to be very comfortable there. Romans chapter 8 verse 30, the apostle Paul writes, and those God predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now the way that verse is constructed, the apostle Paul is looking at the entire process by stepping outside of time as if it has already taken place. There's no leakage in there. If you're justified, what he's saying is, someday you will be glorified. The problem is, right now we're stuck in the middle. We're stuck in the middle between the day we gave our heart to Christ and the day we see him as he is and we are glorified, we're perfected. And we're stuck between our past justification and our future glorification, which is where we come to this process of sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul writes this to the church at Thessalonica. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. 
May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, sanctification, or what Paul is hoping the Thessalonians will allow the Spirit of God to do in their lives, sanctification connects those two dots. It's this righteous bridge between our justification and our glorification. We're in this interim phase of our existence. We're in this process of our becoming in practice, in our daily lives, what we are in our position. We are positionally righteous. Someday we will be glorified and perfected in righteousness. Right now, our practice, today, tomorrow, and the next day, we don't have to wait to experience the newness of resurrected life. We don't have to wait for a glorification. We are both called and capable right now to practice righteousness here on earth. That's what Jesus said in teaching the disciples to pray. God's righteousness can be regularly experienced every day. In Jesus' words, your will be done on earth just like it is where? In heaven. Sanctification becomes this wonderful and practical, albeit imperfect, slice of what our glorification will someday more completely accomplish. Now this process of sanctification or experiencing righteousness, which simply means making good choices, based on what we know about God and how he rolls, we make adjustments to align to his character and his work. And that accomplishes a couple of things. Number one, our sanctification enhances our ability to reach the people around us for Jesus. Because now they can see the righteousness of Christ. Instead of just hearing about it, they can see it demonstrated by how you treat them, by how you live your life. And they have this visual example of the righteousness of Christ in a very practical way. They have this object lesson of what Jesus is like because they know you. But the second thing our sanctification provides is the framework for our reward. Now let me just say, justification and glorification are gifts, free gifts. Our sanctification takes commitment and work. And that's where we land today, with the rewards of righteousness. Now I promise you, because I'm watching the clock too, I promise you we're gonna get to Proverbs eventually, but 1 Corinthians chapter three, verse 10. This is a very important concept to understand, so just track with me for a few minutes. Paul writes, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. Paul there identifies himself as an evangelist, a church planter, and others then came alongside of him and others he had led to Christ and they were building these various churches throughout the world. But each one, he says, should build with care. 
For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, and you'll notice in the text, the day is capitalized, day, capital D, because it's a reference to judgment day. That day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Now we're not talking about a gift. We're talking about a reward. Verse 14, if what has been built survives the fire, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. This is not a salvation issue. Justification, glorification, free gifts. We're talking about sanctification here and the potential that offers us to generate eternal rewards. Verse 15, but if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. Now you may read that and say, what in the world is that about? Well, all Paul is doing is giving us an object lesson, something that his readers, something that those of us, especially here in California, will be able to relate to like immediately. Building a house is something we have watched. Many of us have experienced it. Houses burning down, unfortunately, are something we have watched and some of you perhaps have even experienced. But let's start with building the house. And he talks about two categories of building materials. He talks about good materials and he talks about better materials. You see, wood, hay, and straw are good materials, especially if that's all you got. You can have a house made out of wood, hay, or straw. And in many regions of the world, that's what their homes are made of. And those homes work. They protect the occupants from the elements. No, there's nothing wrong with building a house with wood, hay, and straw. But if better, longer, lasting materials are available, why wouldn't you use them? That's Paul's way of saying there are a lot of good things you could spend your money on. But if there are better things to spend your money on, what are you thinking? There are a lot of good things you could spend your time doing, but there might be better things you could spend your time doing. So, I mean, let's choose well here. It's not always a matter of good versus bad or good versus evil. Many decisions that you and I make are simply a matter of good versus better or good versus best. Now, that's not to say that bad materials don't exist. You could use bad materials to build your house. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes about that. He says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things we did while we were here on this earth, whether good or bad. And the word translated bad there is phalos. It means worthless. There are better building materials but there are also materials that provide no benefit at all. And the point of all, is that, all of this is pretty simple. When we die, God is gonna evaluate our life's priorities by fire. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if this is just a 
an example because he knows we're, we're used to seeing this example played out in real life or if he's going to, you know, pull out his jetpack and blow torch everything that we have done in our lives. But at some point, he's going to evaluate our life's priorities by fire, including your financial investments, including your time investments, including your relationship or people investments. Everything that you did while you were in the body you presently occupy. See? We've all seen the aftermath of a fire in the media, if not personally, and watching families pick through the ashes to find something of value is just heartbreaking. You've seen it. Maybe you've lived it. But even worse than that, I'm afraid many Christians will experience that same sense of loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Because you were justified. You will be glorified. But you'll be like one escaping through the flames. There's just nothing left on judgment day to take with you into eternity. You see, when all the smoke clears after that experience, whatever it looks like, when all the smoke clears, all that really mattered in your life will be left because it's fireproof. Whatever survives that fire frames our eternal reward. See, that's a huge piece of why the process of sanctification matters. Why making choices between the day you were justified and the day you were glorified, making choices that align with the character and work of God and allowing the sanctifying presence of God's Holy Spirit to be displayed through your life. That matters. And that's why you have to, number one, you can fill in this blank, you got to prioritize it. Prioritize it. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. And I promise you, we will get to the book of Proverbs in a minute. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek his, it doesn't say seek his righteousness. It says what? Seek his righteousness first. And then all these things will be given to you as well. Oh, what things are going to be given to me as well? Well, specifically mentioned in the sermon Jesus preached that day, which is what Matthew 6.33 is reflecting. It's just a piece of that sermon. These things are what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. That is every temporal thing we need to live happy and productive lives. Jesus says, you will get those too. If you seek the kingdom of God, how? First, as we are sanctified, our eternal rewards grow simply by making the right choices. But how we handle the process of sanctification also dictates different types of temporal rewards. But firstness is what God requires to trigger his blessing in our practical daily lives. It's that simple. You know it has to be simple if Pastor Tom includes it in a sermon because I don't understand complex. I get simple. And for many of you, 
Firstness is the missing piece in your relationship with God. Because far too many of us prioritize so many other activities for ourselves and for our children that church gets squeezed out of our schedules. Everything else comes first. And if we happen to be in town because we can't find something better to do on the weekend, we'll attend. We desire so many things the world offers. So we seek worldly prosperity before we even think about honoring God first by bringing our tithes to him. Listen, you cannot become more like God by giving to him anything out of what's left over. After everything else you want to do, giving him the leftovers. After everything else you want to buy, giving God the leftovers. That's just not godly. That's not aligning with the character and work of God. Why? Because God would never give us anything out of his leftovers. You'll never hear God respond to someone who thanks him for saving them. Can you imagine that? You see him, you say, hey, God, thanks for saving me. And God responds this way. Ah, Mercer, it was the least I could do. By the way, why do we use that phrase like it's a good thing? Think about it. Oh, it was the least I could do. Well, how much do you care for me if you're doing the least you possibly can? God will never give us out of his leftovers. He gives the absolute best of what he has. He gave us Jesus. He gave us his son, the one the apostle Paul calls the firstborn among many brethren. God gave his firstborn. We give God what? Our first fruits. That's godly. That's choosing righteousness. I mean, is anything left for you after you pay all your bills that you've accumulated? You can try this at home, by the way. Get your paycheck, pay your bills, and give God what's left over. Nothing is left over. People don't not give to the work of the Lord because they hate the work of the Lord or because they don't want to be supportive of the work of the Lord. The reason they don't give is because they are following a blind plan, which is the leftover plan. That's why Jesus said, you know, that's a stupid strategy. If you find yourself, wise man once said, if you find yourself on a dead horse, get off it, end of quote. Jesus said, seek his kingdom, how? First, and then watch God go to work for you. Trust in the Lord, the Proverbs, told you, I told you I would get there. Proverbs chapter three, verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Now, for those of us that past geometry, all four of us, <laughs> or maybe many, I'm just teasing. I'm really telling all these great jokes and you're not even laughing. <laughs> what is the shortest distance between two points? A straight line. See, see, congratulations. Magna 
cum laude or lordy how comey? I don't know, but that's impressive. It's a straight line. So the shortest time frame, I want you to get this, the shortest time frame and the most efficient strategy to find happiness, fulfillment, and reward is by aligning your life with the word of God. Understand who God is, understand how he rolls, and adjust your life to that. Prioritize it. Number two, train for it. The Bible is the source of understanding God's righteousness. It's where you get to know God. It's where you get to learn what's important to God. It's it's where you are shown how you can make adjustments to God. Paul writing Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for everything they do. God's will is incredibly practical. It's for everything you have to do this week. And God says, if you just read the Bible, you're going to find the most efficient way to live. And that's why we teach the Bible. There's a fine line at HTC between preaching and teaching. A lot of people preach, and sometimes we get caught up in our preach mode, right? But we just want you to know what the Bible says. We want you to understand God, understand how he rolls, understand how you can make that alignment or those adjustments. See, the Bible shows you how to make a good decision. That's teaching. The Bible shows you (laughs) the decision you, you made was maybe a bad decision. That's rebuking. The Bible shows you how to correct the fall off from a bad decision. That's correcting. The Bible shows you how to change a circumstance so as not to make the same bad decision again. That's training in righteousness. Where do you get all that stuff? In the Bible. If you can read the Bible and not feel as if you need to be taught, rebuked, corrected, Trained? If you can read the Bible and say, oh, I got that. Brother, you're just not paying attention. All of us need that. All of us need the word of God. Now, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 20. Walk in the ways of the good and keep the paths of the what? The righteous. Those who align their lives with the character and work of God. That's how you live your life. Walk in the ways of the good. That word good Hebrew word tobe, and it refers to those who are doing well in life. And and when I say doing well, I'm, I'm not talking about people who dress well or drive well. I'm talking about people who are, are well. They're well respected by their grown kids. They're faithful to the Lord's work. Their marriage is still growing strong. I tell young people, find somebody like that and then ask them, hey, bro, how did you get here? And then follow that path. Rest in it, number three. Prioritize God's righteousness. Train for God's righteousness. And then rest in it. We live in a culture that is not at peace. We live in a world that is not at peace. We live in a very restless world. People are very agitated. Turn to the person next to you right now and say, you're agitated, aren't you? And, and that might be true. It might not be true. 
But generally speaking, there's this spirit of agitation in the world, and we have such, such short fuses anymore. And the reason is this. It's a very simple concept. We live in a culture, we live in a world that absolutely refuses to limit anyone's options. We're convinced that more choices are a good thing, but they're not. In fact, the research backs that up. The research absolutely shows that the more choices you have, the more stressed you are. More choices simply add more stress to people's lives. It's one of the main reasons why there's so much anxiety in the world. Our culture has said stupid things for a long time. One, they still say, but they said when I was a kid, choose anything you want to be. You can become anything you want to be. I remember hearing that as a kid in elementary school. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, I want to play in the NBA. NBA player is what I really want to become. I can become that. That's what the world told me. But Tommy couldn't do that. Not going to happen. Tommy had no game. Tommy had no skills. Now watch this. In recent years, our society has begun to realize the insanity of that mantra. You can become anything you want to be. And now some want to become members of the opposite gender or they want to identify as a completely different species. You can become anything you want, right? See, when I heard that as a kid, what they meant by that and what I took away from that was that it was simply a challenge to try harder, get better grades, be a better worker. I had no idea what it would mean now years later as my grandchildren's generation hears those same words. Now why do I bring that up? Because Jesus comes along and he simplifies everything. He says, now there's only one way. There are, there are no choices here. Jesus significantly restricts our options. And that's why the whole discussion about Jesus is hilarious to me. Everybody loves Jesus till they find out what he said. Jesus is a very narrow thinker. He eliminated all the confusion by saying he is the only way to heaven. Nobody gets to heaven except over my dead body, Jesus said. Jesus talked about how we find peace by walking a narrow road a narrow road that is accessed by a narrow gate. That is literally narrow thinking. And people don't like that in our culture. They want to keep their options open and their stress load high. And they're miserable. And this is why they're miserable. Because somebody is responsible for your future. It's either you or it's God. Faith in God results in an exchange of responsibility from following a path built on whatever seems right to you, whatever your choices are, whatever you want to be. Just do whatever you want to be. And when you reject that and you follow the path that aligns with God's character and work, 
You guys, I cannot overstate this. If you choose to take personal responsibility for your future, the outcomes are on you. When Jesus said, don't worry about anything, remember when he said that? If I would have been there, I probably would have snickered because I know I can be a worry ward. But when he said, don't worry about anything, it was (laughs) with the understanding that we are going to live in submission to God's will, where God takes over the outcomes of our lives. And it's God's reputation that's on the line. I guess if you're following your own plan, you should worry about the future because you guys, none of us are that smart. That option is just too stressful for me. I, I, I would be too stressed out if I had to navigate a path I built for myself. Because I know me. You know, people say, you do you. I don't want to do me. I know me too well to do me. I just want to do what God wants. And as I read the Proverbs, there are a few things that happen. And I'm going to be very brief here. And that's intended. First of all, when you do him and not you, ruin is replaced with refuge. Ruin is replaced with refuge. Look at Proverbs 10.25. When the storm is swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. I want you to know something very clearly. And if this is the only thing you take out of here, I think it's going to be helpful to you this week. This is it. God is not intimidated by weak economies. God does not care who's making financial policy in Washington. God does not worry about what state you live in. You can rest in the reality that when you place your family's economy into his miraculously capable hands, he's got your back and ruin the ruin you fear is not going to be realized. Rather, you will find refuge. The chances are pretty good that when your life reflects God's character and work, injustice will be replaced by rightness. And you guys, your kids, you know, grandkids now, for some of us, what do you hear more than anything? I mean, what does the whining reflect? That's not fair. Right? I mean, more than anything. Dad, that's not fair. Mom, that's not fair. Look at Proverbs 11, 8. The righteous person is rescued from trouble and it falls on the wicked instead. Let me just tell you, in God's kingdom, nobody gets away with nothing. At the same time, God defends those who choose to align with his character and work. You've seen all those billboards advertising legal firms. You've seen those you drive down the road. I know we got them here on the 15. And I know we're going slow on the 15, right? Got plenty of time to read the billboards. That was a joke too. You guys really need to get on board. You know, we will fight for you. Listen, when you stand for God's truth in the face of hostility, you identify your defense team as the triune Godhead. And I'm just telling you, they never lose a case. Sometimes it might take a little while. The trial may go on a little longer than you want, but you can take it to the bank. 
And speaking of banks, look at number three. A lack of resources is replaced by enough. A lack of resources is replaced by enough. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, those who trust in the riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Down in chapter 13, verse 22, a good person, there's that Hebrew word tob again, a tob person leaves an inheritance for their grandchildren, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. You know what that is saying? God divvies it up any way he wants to divvy it up. A tobe person's integrity doesn't die with them. You say you want to build a life that has integrity when you're dead? Your integrity lives on. The benefits of your integrity are enjoyed for generations. And we've come full circle. This is the same thing we started with, what Jeremiah said about God's plans for us. Look at verse 6, Proverbs 15. The house of the righteous contains great treasure, but the income of the wicked brings ruin because they trust Washington. Imagine that. The chances are pretty good that when your life reflects God's character and work, fear will be replaced by confidence. Fear is replaced by confidence. When God is your back, you don't have to keep looking over your shoulder. Look at Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee even though no one's pursuing them. I mean, this dude's paranoid, man. He's always looking over his shoulder. And she says, man, just relax. Because when you reflect my character and work, you can be as bold as a lion. And then last, shame is replaced by joy. The righteous hate what is false but the wicked make themselves a stench and bring shame on themselves. Verse 6, chapter 29. Evildoers are snared by their own sin, but the righteous shout for what? Joy and are glad. Man, our world could be characterized simply that way. So much evil, so little joy. There is a connection between those two things. I love this quote from one of the Muslim governors of Spain in the 8th century, and he was just reflecting on his life, and he said, and I quote, I have now reigned about 50 years in victory or peace, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, respected by my allies. Riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call, nor has any earthly blessing appeared to have been wanting to my felicity. In other words, he got everything he wanted. In this situation, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. An Austrian philosopher of the last century said this, and I quote, I don't know why we're here, but I'm pretty sure that it is not in order to enjoy ourselves. <laughs> End of quote. And I'm thinking, it's not just the dead guys that say that stuff. You find that kind of sarcasm reflected everywhere today, in movies, in television, in literature, in government, in this country's deep political divide. The reason people can't find joy is they're looking too hard for it. Joy is not the supreme achievement. It is the supreme gift. You can't look for it and find it. But when you pursue God's character and his work, 
He gives you joy as a gift, a reward. All to his glory. All of this to his glory. But all to our benefit as well. All that to say, make good choices. You'll never regret it. Father, we thank you for giving us the chance today to come into a cool auditorium. Thanks for that too. But Lord, we just want to know you. How you work so that we can align our lives to that. And I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would be better equipped to do it this week than we were last week simply because we opened your word today and we heard from your spirit. And if there's anybody watching, listening, sitting here, watching online, if there's anyone who has never given their life to Christ, you've never been justified by faith. Right now, you can't look forward to your glorification. Right now, you don't have the Holy Spirit living in your life, sanctifying you and allowing the world around you to see what God is like. You just haven't gotten in the game yet. And you'd like to. You don't have to be like outside looking in the window of God's kingdom. You can be part of it. ABC, admit you couldn't do it on your own. Admit your sin. We all have to. Every good decision starts with humility. Just admit that. Believe that Jesus can save you. He's the only savior God sent the world. Jesus said himself, I'm the only way. Believe that and then choose to place your faith in him. A simple prayer of invitation. Lord, come into my life. I, gi I give up. I admit that I've failed. I'm a sinner. I believe you can save me and I'm choosing to follow you to place my faith in you today. In Jesus' name. All God's children said, amen. Thank you.